Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Petal Samuel, the co-host of the channel. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Petal Samuel, the co-host of the channel. And today I'll be talking to Christopher Grobe about his new book, The Art of Confession, The Performance of Self, From Robert Lowell to Reality TV, published by New York University Press. Chris is an assistant professor of English at Amherst College, where he teaches a wide range of courses on drama, poetics, performance, and performance culture and theory. Thank you, Chris, for joining me today to talk about your book. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So I thought that we might Uh, start by talking a bit about the origins of this work. So can you talk a bit about how you arrived at this project? And were there any key sort of aha moments where this project crystallized for you? Yeah. Um, So I guess there are always two narratives of how you arrive at a project. One is the actual messy one. And the other one is the thing that seems clear in retrospect. Um, So the actual messy one is that, um, you know, I arrived in in graduate school with a vague sense that um, I wanted to connect literary studies and theater and performance studies and thought that um, as a sort of direct point of connection between those two fields, dramatic monologue as both a poetic and a performance tradition felt like a great point of contact. Um, And so that's where I began. Um, And then as I began to think and learn more about performance studies and performance theory, um, it, it became clear to me that uh, what, I, what I really needed to find was um, a way to talk about the continuity between these literary practices and performance practices and um, the performance of everyday life. And that's how I sort of slowly found my way uh, to confession as a mode not only of literary writing and uh, theatrical performance, but also of um, intimate discourse and um, public political speech. Uh, And then eventually, uh, you know, performance art and stand-up comedy and reality television and social media use. So it just began kind of growing from, from there, from that initial desire to connect literary studies to theater and performance studies. Um, In retrospect, I think, you know, another important reason why I came to this topic is um, I was trying to understand how we talk about uh, an aesthetic movement or a style of art and being um, that seems to hop really quickly and easily from one medium to the next. And um, confessionalism for me is exactly that kind of thing. So it begins um, as a label that uh, critics apply to mid-century poetry, but, you know, pretty quickly uh, it begins to be applied to these other art forms as well. And then to modes of behavior in everyday life too. And I wanted to understand, um, you you know, I think, I think this is a kind of aesthetic movement that's become, um, more and more common as the kind of uh, sort of boundaries uh, between media sort of shift and break down and a sort of cross-platform and cross-media art becomes uh, a much more common thing. And so that's how I also came to really emphasize in my approach to each of these art forms, um, actually all of the different media and different art practices that each one of these uh, artists is engaging. So poets aren't just writing poetry for the page, they're also performing. Or, um, you know, the performance artists I choose to focus on, uh, you know, are, are people who are creating books and making videos and painting, painting things, as well as giving live performance. Um, 
So, um, you know, that, that ultimately is where the kind of, um, like methodological and disciplinary promise of the book, um, took me. And, and it made me realize that in fact, there has been this whole history in performance studies in particular of writing this way. The two examples I, I give, uh, in the preface are, um, Peggy Phelan's Unmarked and Jose Munoz's, um, uh, disidentifications. Um, and, and so I began to see myself as working in a tradition, uh, where, uh, sort of theorizing multiple modes of art under the rubric of performance would allow us to talk about the styled doings of, of, uh, identity and politics. Right. Um, so thinking about the ways that, um, confession and confessionalism um that there's this sort of long tradition of of confession you have this really striking moment in the introduction where you try to um where you you um kind of enact this dialogue where you say this is where confession began actually but this happened before it and then this happened before it and so on and so forth. So there's this sense that we could um, name any number of acts throughout history as confessional and, and that it isn't clear um, whether or not um, confessionalism has this sort of um, single genesis point in, in human history. But you, you do... Um, while you acknowledge that, you do note that there's something really special about this moment in 1950s America where confessional poets begin to be explicitly named as confessional. And, um, you know, and then you also kind of talk in your first chapter about um, poets like Anne Sexton understanding themselves as the secret sort of subversive forces against cultural conformity in a way that would have been really significant and, and concerning in, in this sort of McCarthyist moment. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about this historical moment of the 50s in the U.S. and what was happening that shifted conceptions of the self in that moment and kind of um, energized this desire for public performances of the self. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um... So yeah, I mean, as you say, um, you know, as soon as you begin to think about confession in the abstract, it begins to feel like something foundational, so foundational it must be prehistoric, you know. Um, and uh, and you know, I, I cite um, uh, various other uh, theorists and scholars who have um, you know traced confession back to. Uh, 19th century talk about sex like Foucault or uh, 13th century transformations in the Catholic church. And as Peter Brooks does, um, or even further back to Augustine and beyond. And so accepting that sort of long durée of history and sort of taking that in stride, I wanted to know why a lot of very smart people (laughs) In the, middle, in the middle of the 20th century in America, thought that they were witnessing something really new. And rather than rushing to tell them that in fact they were wrong and they weren't seeing something new, I wanted to understand what it is they were seeing. Um, and so I think part of what they were seeing was a sort of new definition of what confession itself was. Um, I, I think it's telling that, uh, you know, it is only in this period that people like Foucault want to look back and construct a deeper history of confession as a kind of unified phenomenon. Um, and I would actually say that, that this, this desire to historicize confession is actually is part of the confessional moment that I'm describing. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not an argument against it. It's actually part of this because confession is as much a mode of reception and sort of context of artistic production as it is a kind of genre of text. So that's the deeper history. Um, In terms of what was going on in the 50s, um, I I found um, Alan Nadel's idea of containment culture uh, 
really helpful and important. And I, in the introduction of the book, um, I, I posit a kind of uh, culture of or an aesthetics of breakthrough as the equal and opposite force. So the containment culture, um, you know, containment is a word taken from Cold War nuclear strategy. Uh, of of needing to control the spread of um, communism and of uh, yeah of, um, of sort of um, global political forces, um, but uh, to talk about containment culture is to talk about all the ways in which kind of <clears throat> anxious desire to contain and control uh, all sorts of things, not not just politics but sexuality, etc. Um, sort of really defined uh, this moment in Cold War culture. So I think uh, in one sense, confession took off as a sort of reaction formation against this, this containment culture. Um, and I honestly, I think it was also that uh, a bunch of different forces were uh, coming to the fore in American culture at the same time. Um, there's a certain kind of mainstreaming of uh, U.S. Catholicism. There's a kind of mainstream uh obsession with um, psychoanalysis and other psych uh, psychological literature. Um, and as I talk about in the, in the introduction, um, there's also a lot of kind of worry on the national level about the, the status of, of criminal confession. So all these things are kind of happening at, at the exact same time and are contributing to a, a sort of new notion of, of confession as this kind of, shape-shifting impulse that um, sort of hops from one realm to the other. And uh, I point out that um, so there's a book by a psychoanalyst named uh, Theodore Reich called The Compulsion to Confess, and it, and it was published in, in German in the 1920s. Um, but it actually came out in 1959, the same year as Robert, uh, Robert Lowell's Life Studies, from his very same imprint from the very same press um, for our Strauss and Cudi um, in English for the first time. And, and I use this coincidence to talk about um, the way in which psychoanalytic ideas, which, you know, have their origin in the early 20th century, really, you know, people in America were beginning to grapple with them for the first time at the turn of the sixties. Um, and, and that that's the appropriate context in which to understand um, what's going on with confessional poetry and, and therefore with later confessional movements as well. Um, and what Theodore Reich does that um, I think is so transformative is, you know, he kind of wants to reduce all of these different practices and he includes not just Catholic confession and psychoanalysis, but all the way down to like blushing, you know, um, like really basic, almost physiological behaviors. He wants to reduce them all to one sort of primordial urge, which he calls the compulsion to confess. And I, and I think like, you know, that, that is how a lot of people were beginning to understand confession in the middle of the 20th century, including those poets we call confessional. So I think the label stuck to them because they were involved in so many different kinds of confession themselves, not just in their poetry, um, but it was well known that they were all in therapy, right? And in fact, uh, and, you know, some of them had... Uh, some of them had an actual criminal record. All of them had a kind of outlaw air. Um, and, uh, uh, and they were all kind of flirting with Catholicism. Robert Lowell actually converted to Catholicism at one point. So, you know, they were kind of enacting this uh, sort of fluid shape-shifting vision of what confession is. And that was, that, that was just a convergence of forces in America in the 1950s that kind of gave real punch to this label, confessional. So I love, there are a number of things I loved in your response. Uh, first, um, the sort of point of not rushing to make the critical move of saying this is not new. Of um, You know, um, I love these moments in the book where you say um, the fact that a word is on people's lips in a moment is by itself um, worthy of study and worthy of note. And um, uh, thinking about um, what you've said about um, containment culture and um, confessional poetry being this reaction against containment culture, it's also um, 
really fascinating when you when you talk about these kind of multiple kinds of confession that your work is really troubling what it is that's being released or what it is that's being laid bare through confession and um so one of the most exciting things about the work is this destabilization of of the notion of confession as um laying bare of an essential truth or unmitigated access to a um, the sort of fiction of a coherent um, person. Um, but at the same time, it's neither a lie or artifice. And um, so I'm, I was really struck by these moments where your chosen artists are sort of bristling against the suggestion that they're taking on a stage persona or engaging in artifice. Um, and so I wonder if um, I saw this sort of tension between these notions of truth and untruth and the unmediated natural and the unnatural construction being captured really beautifully in, in your title, which joins art with confession and then joins performance with self. So I have this sort of two-pronged question for you. So one is, could you talk a bit about how um, your title um, and the sort of tensions and um, unlikely affiliations enacted in your title, um, how it works to preview the argument in the book. And also, can you talk a bit about the cover image you've selected and what work you see it doing to frame the book? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. Oh. The title came very late in the whole process. I knew the subtitle for a very long time, The Performance of Self from Robert Lowell Reality TV, because, um, well, alliteration is cool. But also, um, both in terms of time period and in terms of the sort of cultural range, Robert Lowell Reality TV are the kind of extreme points of um, this book. So from the 1950s to the present and from, um, you know, presumptively high art of poetry to the presumptively low culture of reality TV. Um, so working backward from Robert Little Reality TV, uh, the performance of self, um, you know, I, that was always meant to kind of um, echo Goffman's The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, which was also published in America in 1959, uh, by the way. It was probably, you know, sitting on some of the same bookshelves as Life Studies and The Compulsion to Confess. Um, and, uh, you know, Irving Goffman, uh, you know, he drives some people crazy because, uh, to see the world as he does through theatrical metaphor can, can really make you paranoid. Um, but I don't think he ever really intended to do that. Um, that is, uh, you know, there's this beautiful moment at the end of the presentation of self in everyday life where he says, you know, look, this was only a metaphor to help us see certain things about the world. And now that we're done seeing those things, we can ditch the metaphor. It's like a, a scaffolding that he has used to kind of build up his sociological theory. And now we can take it down. And so, I, you know, the presentation of self in everyday life um, stands as a kind of model for me of how you balance this uh, sort of uh, paranoid viewing and a kind of um, ingenuous desire to construct reality. Um, and I sort of wanted to uh, echo that in my own title. And then the art of confession. Um, yeah, it's a phrase from my book, um, but it took a marketing department to tell me <laughs> that it ought to be my title. <laughs> and it's a beautiful title and I can't take credit for it, except that it is a phrase from my book. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, as you, as you implied in your question, um, the art of confession uh, is both uh, you know, the, the, the practice of confession and the artifice of confession at once. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to capture both of those elements, um, in every part of my argument from the title to the index. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about that word art, um, this is a book about art um, art in various media and modes. Um, but it is also about the art in the artless. Um, that is to say, it's, a, it's about uh, the sort of hidden structures that shape, uh, 
you know, sort of everyday intimacies um, and that are only exaggerated, exaggerated or laid bare um, in art proper. Um, so that's the title. Uh, the image, uh, yeah, I was delighted to find this image. It's probably the uh, only photograph ever in which both Robert Lowell and Allen Ginsberg appear. It's from a joint reading they gave. Um, and uh, the argument of um, my uh, chapter on confessional poetry is that we ought to understand uh, the work of Robert Lowell and other confessional poets like Anne Sexton um, more in sort of conversation with the beats than we are, are likely to do. Um, and that in fact, this is how they themselves uh, thought of their own work. They thought of themselves kind of splitting the difference between academic poetry and beat poetry. Um, Robert Lowell was saying this all the time. Um, Anne Sexton you know, I quote this letter where she describes herself as a, a secret beatnik hiding in the suburbs. Um, so that kind of captures the argument of that one chapter. Um, but it also, uh, you know, as a, as a cultural artifact, it captures this kind of um, complex of poetry and performance um, that was, uh, you know, always sort of combining in, in new and surprising ways. Um, so this was a reading at, at St. Mark's in uh, downtown New York, uh, you know, a venue that, that's known for hosting poetry readings like this joint reading between Lowell and Ginsburg, but also all kinds of um, performance. And you see those two blurry people in the center in the background. I haven't really figured out who those are. There was a time I really like their silhouettes really look like, um, Judith Molina and Julian Beck, the founders and directors of the Living Theater. And I really wanted it to be them um, because, you know, that kind of avant-garde performance scene uh, kind of, you know, was occupying a lot of the same spaces in downtown New York. Um, alas, I have, I have the ill fortune of, of knowing uh, a scholar who is editing the diaries of Judith Molina right now, <laughs> a woman named Kate Bredesen at, uh, at Reed College. And, um, and uh, she was able to tell me in no uncertain terms that they were in Barcelona <laughs> that day. So I wish I'd never asked her. <laughs> well, I, I was wondering what was going on with because um, I'm hearing sort of like close reading the cover of your book and I'm like, what's going on in the background? And is there a reason why he selected this photo with these people who are out of focus and, you know, who could they be? And is, is the question of who they might be and who we conjure as who they might be part of like the work of the cover? So in my, <laughs> so in my read, even though we, we know it's not them, it is maybe significant that these are the people, right. <laughs> I want it to be them. <laughs> I want it. Uh, also, I should say, um, you know, in terms, this is not just uh, a great image of the kind of confessional poets as beatniks thing, because it happens to contain a confessional poet and a beatnik. I also see this image of Robert Lowell as like him doing his best beatnik drag, you know, with the like messy hair and the, the, the glasses and the, uh, the whole look. Um, right, and, right. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, um, what you were just saying about holding um, practice and artifice and tension throughout, throughout the book um, was one, um, definitely a major through line that I saw uniting all your chapters. And um, this really provocative, but, but difficult idea that the persona and the personal aren't always at odds in your words. And um, there's, so there's this moment in chapter one where you describe Anne Sexton's former therapist attending her performance and, and sort of giving her the wrong compliment and calling her a splendid actress. Uh, but then sort of relatedly in, in chapter four, you talk about um, these sort of, paranoid readings of the genre of reality TV. Um, and instead you're, you're trying to ask us to um, think about the ways that um, posturing and authenticity and stylization and artlessness 
can and do coexist in, in all these genres. So this is making me curious about the structures of desire and the modes of criticism at play in both high zones of sort of, you know, quote, high and low culture, right? Um, when we are engaging with these performances. So I'm wondering um, kind of two, two um, related questions ab- about um, occurring respectively in the kind of low and high culture <laughs> zones. So um, one is why, why do we feel the need to declare um, in quotes, um, you know, with the example of reality TV, for instance, that we understand it's just a performance that we, we know that this is not real. We understand this is artifice, right? Um, uh, this sort of declaration that we we're not being fooled or we're not being hoodwinked. So what's, what's happening in that moment and why? And relatedly as literary critics, um, you talk about, um, sort of, new criticism and this impulse to talk only about texts and never about authors. So it's sort of a sin in literary criticism to ever make any sort of um, gesture or suggestion um, that you're taking into consideration in any way, the, the author um, of the work. And so I wonder if um, um, we as literary critics, um, need to rethink this impulse to talk only about texts and never about authors. And if um, what you what you did in chapter one with the discussion of the breadth of the poem, which is this kind of mode of criticism that is um, exploring the productive tension between print and performance and between text and author, um, is, is this something that can be exported as a mode of literary criticisms to, of, of literary criticism to other texts and, and contexts? Do you see it as something that we can, that can challenge the, the sort of, um, hegemonic modes of literary criticism right now? Totally. Yes. Um, thanks. That's a really complicated and great question. Um, so let's see. Let's start with the, the question of why, why we have the impulses we do. And I'll start with the we being scholars. Um, I think, you know, in connection with um, confessional art, um, there's a real anxiety about being taken as too credulous. Um, I think the pendulum kind of has swung too far in the other direction. Um, I, I give the example of uh, um, Robert Lowell saying, um, you know, he wants his readers to feel like they're getting the real Robert Lowell, um, which nobody ever takes as saying exactly what it, as meaning exactly what it says, right? It's like, we want to say, we want to imagine him, you know, twirling um, his mustache and saying, I want them to feel like they're getting the truth. <laughs> um, and, 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 and so part of this is our, 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 um, impulse not to seem caught out by the artwork. And this is, you know, you use the word paranoid. This is a classic example of what Yudhikasasi Sejwick calls paranoid reading. Um, I think uh, there's also been uh, a kind of critical and theoretical emphasis on um, deconstruction and critique um, for a long time now. Uh, And a less of an emphasis on uh, the construction of the real. Um, And and so, you know, one of the kind of higher meta levels at which my thinking about this book is, is working is, you know, I want to, I want to understand confessionalism, not just as uh, a deconstruction of the self, but as an, as a new construction of it Um, as, as an, and, and that, that matters because, new constructions of the real show us modes of cultural power. And I want to understand how they work. Um, and uh, n- not just understand how they fail, right? Um, and you can probably tell I'm sort of slipping into this whole conversation about the limits of critique uh, that Rita Felsky has opened up. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, that's a, 
that's a minefield. Uh, I don't want to tread carefully there, but, um, but I, I do, I do have some sympathy with um, that argument in the sense that like, you know, to focus only on critique uh, is to give up an interest in the construction of cultural power. Right. Um, and to um, sort of leave the field of that construction to other people. Um, so, okay. Um, thinking about this question you raise about uh, poetry and autonomy, um, like is the poem autonomous from the author, from the world, etc. Yeah, I argue very much that confessionalism is 100% an anti-autonomy movement. It's a reaction against new criticism and cognate modes of criticism that try to think about the artwork as autonomous from life and from the world. And this has been particularly important for structuring the way we think about and read poetry. I, I think of a book by um, Gillian White at the University of Michigan called Lyric Shame, which um, which argues that, you know, that um, even non-confessional poetry uh, in this period has been deeply structured by an anxiety and shame about being too lyrical um, and being too simply an expression uh, and too expression of the self. Um, and uh, and so I'm I'm kind of working the other side of that of that binary. Um, and then yeah, in terms of Oh yeah, so I, I started with talking about the us being scholars, but us is just people in the world consuming all kinds of culture. Um, reality TV is a great example of something that we have all we all talk about endlessly as not being really real. Like this seems to be the one thing everybody feels comfortable saying about reality TV is it, is it isn't real. And um, uh, there's a television scholar, Mark Andreevich, who's made a really uh, he wrote an essay called When Everyone Has Their Own Reality Show, which I highly recommend, um, where he basically points out that um, we don't know if this credulous person exists who is convinced that reality TV is real. Um, in fact, we probably have to invent that person. And, you know, it begins to kind of psychoanalyze, like, why we need to invent that person who is duped and taken in by reality TV. Um, and he calls it something like um, part of our panic-stricken construction of the real, something like that. Um, that is, like, to have people who uh, whose perception of reality TV we, we can critique is a kind of negative way to sustain a certain other kind of reality and authenticity that we don't have to argue for. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, I think there, are, especially in relation to reality television, um, you know, I think a lot of, uh, everyday viewers of reality TV would, would read some of the paranoid critique of it and say, well, like, yeah, duh, you think I didn't know that? Um, and the question is what kind of, uh, what within this artifice that everybody knows and acknowledges, what is the reality? Cause there is, cause there is also reality. Um, and that's the, the, the side of uh, reality television that I'm trying to, um, emphasize in my treatment of it. Um, and then your last question was about exporting it um, to other modes. Uh, and I guess maybe I answered that by connecting it to this larger conversation about the limits of critique. Um, you know, that, that uh, oh, you were asking about exporting the, the sort of anti-autonomy thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think all texts now circulate in... Um, all texts now circulate in ways that far exceed the textual. And I give the example of like uh, memoir writers who, who at the very least are expected to go around giving readings and making public appearances. Um, but um, some of them really take it to extremes. I give the example of um, Cheryl Strayed, who, you know, uh, best known for this, sort of a uh, book called Wild, which uh, was sort of picked by 
Oprah to launch her on the online version of her book club, Oprah's book club 2.0. And, um, and I, I point out that it's like, it's really weird to focus on that book to the exclusion of a lifelong practice of confessing in all kinds of media, in all kinds of ways. Um, so she yeah, has an advice column that in which she ends up talking about her own life quite a lot, which has turned into a podcast and she's written a, a sort of semi-autobiographical novel. And, and so to, to export the kind of attitudes and methods I'm, I'm um, constructing in, in this to talk about other things would be to be attentive to the way that literature circulates um, in, right. around and through performance. Um, thank you, by the way, for um, um, parsing through what I now realize was a four-part <laughs> question i intended to be a two a two part question <laughs> but <laughs> i'm really just glad i had a pen to hand <laughs> i will be more careful <laughs> no no it's a great question well, it's so rich. you know there's so much in in your response that um that i want to kind of pick up on i mean the way that um this idea of conjuring a viewer of ra- of reality TV who's engaging with it in a way that that is worthy of critique, um, in a way that that um, sort of uh, frees us from the the sort of embarrassment of what you um, talk about in the beginning of the chapter as the the shame of confessing that we that we watch reality TV at all, right? So, um, and um, also um, the ways that um, I was struck by um, the way that you talk about um, the construction, the aesthetics of confession, for instance. And so, um, and there's so many different ways that this happens um, over the course of the book. So, um, there are ways that you, uh, when you talk about camp sincerity and you talk about um, the ways that um, that drag um, finds a way to um, allow sincerity and irony to coexist in, in a way that's unproblematic. Um, you also have this moment where you talk about um, minimalism. So this idea of the kind of lack of props, lack of elaborate costuming and staging and this sort of one person alone on stage and um, how that has the effect of um, minimizing, it's supposed to have the effect of minimizing the distance between the audience and the performer, um, even though you expose this as as yet another form of stylization. Um, so it's clear that confession is um, stylized um, in all these different kinds of ways but it, it led me to a question about the content of, of confessional performances. And so um, I, I started to uh, be curious about whether or not you found um, that there are certain kinds of narratives or disclosures that are more likely to be taken as confessional. So when you talk about Robert Lowell making disclosures about mental illness and you talk about um, Eleanor Anton and that kind of wonderful um, um, uh, work domestic piece and, um, you know, kind of like exposing um, these uncomfortable conversations with, with her mother. Um, Yeah. So are there certain kinds of stories that, that we tend to receive as confessional? And if so, why? So I think at one point in the book, I call confessionalism fundamentally a genre of identity crisis. And um, I think that is the most fundamental common thread. And um, so whether that identity crisis is coming from um, struggling with mental illness or, um, you know, ambivalence toward um, family life or married life, um, or whether it's coming from a kind of um, sort of uh, culture shock or cultural transplantation, like those are the narratives that we 
um, tend to call confessional. Um, anything that seems to open up a kind of rift uh, within the self or between the self and society that needs to be bridged or healed. Um, so that that those are the most common kinds of content. And and in in saying that, I'm I'm drawing somewhat on Diane Middlebrook's um, account of confessional poetry as um, you know essentially about a kind of mid-century crisis in the nuclear family. Um, and so I think it's interesting. I I'd never quite consciously connected that to Eleanor Ann's domestic piece, but yes, of course, right. That's exactly an example of confessional art being confessional to the extent that it is um, exposing and disrupting that image of domestic peace um, and, or, or showing the work required to sustain it anyway. The idea of, of um, confession being legible as confession, so long as it is um, staging a crisis or staging um, particularly a, a crisis of, of rift or fissure between self and society um, raises um, questions for me about um, the role of race, gender, class, and, you know, kind of sexual politics and confessionalism. And you work really hard in the text to point out um, the fact that um, this is a white middle-class suburban cadre of artists who are um, being celebrated for confessing. And, and you also point in really interesting ways to the, to the ways they um, um, gravitate to the language of marginalization in order to describe their own um, crises. Um, and while sort of marginalized communities, you point out, are really problematically viewed as not possessing the sort of requisite interiority or access to privacy that would create the tension of a revelation. So the tension of the, the private becoming public. Um, and so this um, sort of helped me to think anew about our current moment and about these sort of um, sort of um, publicly documented um, instances of police brutality being being caught on camera and um, these disclosures of, about sexual violence and how these are themselves also exposing um, certain kind rifts between the self and society right and um, but and yet they get to they um, kind of get, um, there's all this resistance to understanding them as um, as um, sort of significant of of a pattern, um, representative of a pattern, or even as as real. And so, could you talk a bit more um, about how about the politics as you've encountered it in your work and as you've um, kind of explored it in the in the interludes of your work? What what is um, what does not get viewed as as properly confessional, and and who is um, exempt from the zone of the confessional, and and why? Um, that's a fabulous question. So, um, yeah, you're sort of uh, alluding to um, ideas that I draw uh, from uh, other thinkers. So. Um, Deborah Nelson, who's written a great book called Pursuing Privacy in Cold War America about privacy law and confessional poetry, is the one who points out that, that confessional poetry, so-called, was at least at first a, a sort of white middle-class, predominantly heterosexual genre. Um, and she says that's because, you know, that's who had an expectation of privacy um, that, could be, could, that could be violated or transgressed in this way. Um, and I'm also drawing on, on James Baldwin. It's, I'm actually quoting a, this is a James Baldwin's essay about Norman Mailer. Um, when he's, he says um, something like, uh, you know, that there's a certain kind of uh, identity crisis that can only um, startle white men who believe the world is theirs and who expect the world to help them in the achievement of their identity, right? Um, so, yeah, insofar as this is a genre of identity crisis, um, it, it, both on the, on the production side of confessional art and on the reception side, 
there are barriers to especially artists of color being taken as confessional. Um, I'm interested in this, the distinction, there are two words that tend to get used, testimony and confession. I never really bring this up in the book, but um, like, it, it seems to me that, that testimonial uh, is a word that gets applied much more often to the art of marginalized people than confessional. And that has to do with um, uh, something I do describe in the book, which is um, the way in which uh, especially artists of color are taken as representative of, of their identities, of their communities, et cetera. And so they are testifying to something common rather than confessing to something personal. Um, yeah. In terms of the connection to contemporary discussions of police brutality and, and sexual violence, um, yeah, the, I mean, I think uh, the current kind of um, flood of personal narratives about sexual violence um, you know, it is totally controlled by um, an aesthetics of, of confessionalism. Uh, just the fact that I used the word flood there, like it does feel like it's a moment of, of breakthrough. Um, and and I, say off, I say early in the book and, and often throughout it that confession um, stylistically is really always trying to stage this constraint and breakthrough, this containment and breakthrough. Um, and so in a way, um, the kind of, uh, f flood of narratives right now is, um, totally in keeping with the, the, the tradition of confessional art I describe, um, and of confessional politics that's related to it, um, from feminist consciousness, consciousness raising and, and, um, you know, uh, coming out, uh, narratives, uh, forward. Um, yeah, I mean, police brutality, um, it, it's hard for me to think of what's going on there as confessional. Um, it feels more a matter of documenting, but I think you're right in focusing on, um, the extent to which the reality of, of, um, police brutalities is trying, is, uh, being questioned by those who don't want to accept the reality of those videos. And, um, and narratives. Um, and I would just say that, that, um, you know, the, the kind the modes of thinking that I'm trying to develop in this book, um, could be really good for describing, uh, ways of modes of belief in the face of unbearable, uh, realities, right. And like ways of, um, you know, I end up talking in Dakota about um, sort of student protest, both anti-racist protest and um, protest around sexual violence. Um, and uh, so there's, I think I'm, I'm also trying to think through models of how confessions add up to movements and communities. Um, like how, and, and for me, um, sort of second wave feminist consciousness raising is a really great model of this, of how it happens. Um, and I really insist on seeing um, consciousness raising techniques and, um, as, as beautiful and not just effective um, because I think that the, the, the sort of emotional excitement of feeling narratives and the power, the political power of feeling narratives, uh, personal narratives uh, into political beliefs is one of the things I'm talking about and, and might be applicable to, um, to, to stories we're telling today about um, racial and sexual violence. Right. Yeah. And I think um, what, what you're pointing to, and, and I want to um, kind of, uh, jump to the question of of why you closed with student protests, but this this question or this um, um, point about um, uh, 
the ways that um, confession um, can generate um, certain kind of forms of solidarity um, is a, a really important, to me, a really important moment of um, highlighting that something like breakthrough, you know, there, cause there are real barriers to um, these students telling their stories. There are real um, things that, um, so this moment of, of breakthrough isn't um, kind of merely staged, right? There, there are actual, actual forces that, that make it difficult for um, lots of these actors to say the things that they're saying um, even even as um, there are moments where um, that breakthrough can be stylized in, in certain ways and and so on and so um, so yes I guess I'd, I'd like to um, hear you talk a bit about um, why you close with um, the protests at Amherst and at Columbia and why that felt like the right place for you to um, tie up your study. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so this might be another way of thinking about the distinction between confession and testimony that I was talking about. Um, the, the aesthetics of breakthrough, the sort of staging of the, the difficulty and the triumph over the difficulty of saying these things. Um, I think that has become kind of normalized as a powerful mode of politics. Um, that is say, uh, you know, I say, say at one point in the introduction that like, we want, we want the truth, but we want it hard because the strain authenticates. Right. Um, and in a way, you know, without saying that anyone is, you know, putting on a show in these moments of political testimony, um, I think I do want to say that, um, we seem drawn today to, um, like modes of political expression that um, sort of demonstrate and fight through the constraints on saying the things we're saying, rather than modes of political discourse that uh, um, just straight up declare um, declare these realities. Um, and so that's a that's a that's a stylization of our ways of telling stories about ourselves that. Um, can explain these political protests just as well as it explains poetry, just as well as it explains uh, social media use, let's say. Um, yeah, I mean, so in terms of why I wanted to end my book on that note, um, it was the, you know, the, the Amherst uprising protests, um, you know, that was a defining event of uh, my life and the lives of my students during the time when I was finishing this book. So just on a personal level, um, it was, uh, it was really important to me. And, um, and I saw my students demonstrating really powerfully the, um, the sort of community building and world shaping power of telling personal narratives this way. Um, and so it was, it was this real moment of, you know, emerging from my office where I was like shut up with my books and seeing what I was trying to write about demonstrated in the world in this powerful way. Um, and as I said in the coda, um, as powerful as that sort of um, open, open mic testimonial confessional moment was on the ground, um, I think it was also a real learning moment for me and for my students in terms of what is able to travel through the media. So that was um, a tremendous moment of uh, transformation and community building on campus. Uh, but then those, those, that aspect of those protests kind of fell out of the public narrative of what these protests were about. Um, and in, in their stead came just this list of, of demands, which were, you know, quickly circulated and quickly just sort of caricatured and, and mocked. Right. Um, and, um, and 
I think it was, you know, for my students, for a lot of them, it was the first time they had seen the difference between what a political moment could feel like on the ground and what its media avatar looked like. And so I ended with the mattress protests because um, at Columbia against sexual assault, because that felt to me like a really great example of something that could have been a protest that could have been conducted in a straightforwardly confessional mode, um, but that wasn't. And, and that circulated more powerfully in the media because it wasn't. Um, and so instead of um, telling her story um, directly, Emma Solkowitz found a way to embody that story in the task of carrying this mattress around everywhere she went on campus for months and months. And um, it's my sense that, uh, you know, in this day and age, um, that, that it's that kind of theatrical embodied, um, fundamental mode of using life material that promises the most kind of political power. For me as a reader, it was a powerful place to close because it just, um, um, felt, um, I mean, it's just so clear in that moment how um, your thinking is um, engaging or how your thinking is um, kind of um, growing through your relationship to your students and through the real things that um, we navigate in the profession as as people who are resources for these students and as people who aren't just sort of creating knowledge in, um, you know, out in, in no context at all, right? We are working at institutions um, where, you know, um, our students and our colleagues and, and our lives and the world kind of shape our thinking. And so I love any moment where um, scholarship is able to lay bare. Um, and so this is like me <laughs> reaching for a form of confession, lay bare, <laughs> lay bare the, the ways that we walk through the world and, and how that um, feeds our scholarship. Um, so on that note, I wanted to um, ask a, a question about your writerly voice, which I thought was so remarkable. It was so lively, so engaging, and, and so inviting. And this is material that um, can be potentially a little intimidating to um, readers who aren't familiar with performance theory and aren't familiar with this period or with these, these writers. But um, you have a way of really inviting um, the reader um, into your archive and, and making the reader feel um, kind of... Um, you know, familiar with these figures. And part of that um, was that it, it felt very much like um, the voice belonged to someone with um, extensive training in theater and performance. And, um, and that the text itself on the level of its form employs some of the devices of, of a play. And so there's, there are the, the interludes being perhaps the most obvious example, but then also moments, um, like I mentioned before in the introduction where you sort of break into dialogue with one voice in italics and the, the other voice in, um, upright kind of normal text. So, um, I wanted to ask if you could talk about, um, how you decided on a writerly voice, um, for this project, um, how you, um, what was your process for producing that voice and what effect did you hope it would have on your reading audience? Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that question because it, it often feels like the, the, the way in which we write things um, is presumed transparent and um, you know, like that, that to talk about it is somehow to get less serious rather than, uh, less serious about the subject rather than what it is, which is, um, you know, uh, um, another level at which our criticism and our thinking is working. Um, so yeah, 
so I, I do I do have an extensive background in theater and performance. Um, before I was ever an academic, I was uh, I was a, a, a working actor for um, about ten years, and that surely um, shapes the way I write. Uh, you know, I, I want um, I want my my writing not just to say something, but to do it um, as well. And um, and in that sense, you know, I'm engaging this tradition in performance studies scholarship of of what what's called performative writing. Um, but also, um, you know, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from uh, writing, particularly in like you know queer feminist and African American studies of opening up the available tones, the tones available to criticism and theoretical writing, um, and so yeah, I crack jokes, I invent characters, I ventriloquize other people, I construct little thought experiments, um, and uh, that that to me is about uh, just putting more tools at the disposal of critical thinking. Um, it it's, it can sometimes feel like. Um, I, I, I often like to feel, and maybe this is what you're alluding to when you said you felt you were getting to know the artists. Um, I try to make arguments as if by accident in the process of telling stories. And, um, and I do that because it's fun. <laughs> and, uh, but also because, um, you know, it's in keeping with the, the subject where, um, you know, a sort of engagement with the, the lived reality of the subject and the people is really important. Um, and I wouldn't want to stand uh, aloof from that, but I want to engage all of the emotional and experiential range. Um, one thing I will say is, you know, I had uh, reviewers of this manuscript encouraging me to write more confessionally myself and that is where I drew the line because in a sense I didn't um well the place where they were really asking for it was when I was writing about um the protest at Amherst College and I really didn't want to do it there there because um it really was not about me in that moment um but uh also I think like you know the these kinds of um there's not a simple one-to-one -one mapping between the things we write about and the way we write about them. Um, I think I joked in my response to the readers' reports that, you know, until scholars of masochistic performance break out the razor blades, like I'm not going to start confessing. Um, uh, that that is to say that, like, you know, I I, I think there's um, something more we can do than imitate our subjects but instead like demonstrate a stance toward our subjects. And um, I get misty and I get ironic and those are all affects that I find in the art itself. Uh, and I can, I can evoke those affects without um, confessing myself. Well, um, I wanted to um, sort of turn to the kind of close of our conversation by asking you um, to talk a bit about what you're working on now and if there are any future projects in the works that you're excited about. Yeah. So um, in the most immediate sense, I, I've been giving talks and I'm working on this article um, about the politics of performance today, um, specifically about the tendency in this last presidential election on the left and in the mainstream media to refer to Donald Trump as a performance artist. Um, and this connects to the work I was doing on performance art in this book in the sense that, um, you know, usually what people meant when they said he was a performance artist was one of two things, either that nothing about what he was doing was real or um, that, uh, we can rest assured that even he does not mean what he says. Um, and in keeping with my focus on understanding modes of cultural power, I really want to take seriously that, um, 
he is a performance artist and that he's using um, political performance um, in new and powerful ways and mounting a uh, anti-theatrical critique of American politics as usual that um, we as performance scholars really need to grapple with. Um, so that's just a, a sort of article project that came sort of tangentially out of the book and out of living through the last year. Um, uh, in terms of my next book book projects, um, I'm working on an edition of a Spalding Gray monologue that has as yet gone unpublished and that I write about in the chapter on Spalding Gray. Um, and I'm uh, looking forward to a book on the relationship between uh, technology and realist acting, which comes out of uh, thoughts I was having while writing about the the way in which like the importance of uh, media technologies to the construction of confessional selves, um, which led me to deeper histories of, of technology as a kind of scene partner. Um, and then to ideas of the actor him or herself as um, a kind of machine, which uh, is a, is really central to um, theories of, of realist acting. Um, and so, yeah, I'm thinking about robots a lot lately, uh, <laughs> specifically uh, the, the, um, our, fa- our persistent fascination with seeing uh, human actors play robot characters, um, but also the uh, real connections between social robotics and theater. So the theatrical language of artificial intelligence theory the use of theatrical spaces as a place to test out new social robots, and even, believe it or not, um, the recent application of ideas from acting theory to the coding and programming of social robots. Yeah. So uh, it may feel like a, a quite, quite a distance traveled from uh, the art of confession, and it is, but what they have in common is um, this focus on uh, – sort of constructing new models of the human. Well, it's so exciting to hear about your future projects and they, and it feels, um, it's clear to me how those projects are emerging from the art of confession in ways um, and then parting with it in, in exciting ways. It, I mean, it is, I mean, it's clear thinking about um, Donald Trump and, you know, um, the way that part of the way we mount our criticisms of him are, you know, is rooted in his um, participation in a reality show. And, you know, and that's, that's the sort of sign of artifice that, you know, um, that then structures our critique of um, his political performance and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, and, and these broader conversations about the natural and, um, and mediation, forms of mediation for, for performance that now that you have talked about your future projects makes clear that these these are questions about what it means to be human and what it means to be natural and what it means to um, be, um, what are the possibilities for um, accessing that that thing that we might call the, the real self or the natural self when we're in community with other people. Um, so yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for, um, a wonderful conversation. Thank you. These were fabulous questions. Thank you. Yeah. So we've been discussing the art of confession, the performance of self from Robert Lowell to reality TV. Thank you so very much, Chris, for a really fantastic and thought provoking conversation. 